From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. The news media spins facts into fear to keep us watching, reading, and clicking to line their pockets. And one of the lies they keep telling us is that gun owners are very few, all white, ultra-radical, and really, really dangerous. They claim to follow the science, so let's do that. Let's look at the shocking things a recent university study says about guns, gun owners, concealed carry, self-defense, and more. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Rob Morse, author of the Slow Facts blog and host of Self-Defense Gun Stories podcast. Hi, Rob. Welcome back to the podcast. Dean, thank you for having me back. So, Rob, I'm sitting here in dreary Ohio where it's cold and snowy. I suppose you're down there on the Gulf, basking in the sun, sipping adult beverages, and just laughing at us northerners. Um, I'm working outside after the hurricanes knocked down my fence. I've got a guy here today who's painting it. Ah, any other damage? I, I hadn't really been following weather news. I didn't know there was oh, a hurricane. Oh, well, this, this was from the hurricane over a year ago. Oh, yeah, it took away everything that didn't matter. Uh, I lost shingles, fences, gutters, trees. Kept the water out that time. The flood got me, though. So you're in a low-lying area there? I wasn't until we had a one in 500-year <laughs> rain. I'm from West Virginia, and everywhere you live in West Virginia, pretty much, it's near water. So growing right. up, it was just a lot of my memories are floods. Right. You know, is it going to get to the house and— you know, my grandfather putting a stick in the backyard to see, you know, where the water is and if it's rising or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm used to that. And I still have family who, who lives near water. Um, let's just, let's face it. If you stack enough weather on us, we've all got a problem. Well, you know, after I moved out of West Virginia, I made it a point everywhere I would live, everywhere we would move, I would check where the flood zones were. to Because right. I was done with that. I mean, right. every place we lived in West Virginia, because it's it's you're always near a river or a creek. Right. Of course. I, I should say a creek. <laughs> no, there are no creeks. They're creeks. But, uh, yeah, and I, I grew up with that. And then when I moved to Ohio, I would literally check out, you know, where are the flood zones, even if it was an apartment. Because I'd been through that so much, I didn't want to deal with it. Didn't want to do it. Well, no. and we thought we were above the flood zone, but one in 500-year rains— yeah. We, we had over 10 inches of rain in a couple of hours. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, we have a, there's a, a creek down the hill from, a, we're actually up on a hill. Right. Um, and there's a creek, and you can see where the flood zone is. So we, all the houses are above that flood zone. So that must be like the 100-year flood area. Right. But the, the, the creek never, I've never seen it cover the road. Sure. Uh, of course, that's you know that's in a suburban area. But if it if we got that much rain, I'm sure it would. You know, we'd be we'd probably be blocked at least the front entrance to the neighborhood. Yeah. So, Rob, the last time you were on the podcast, 
We talked about how the news media deliberately lies about guns and gun owners and self-defense and all of that. Now, I'm having you back because there's a study that came out last year that revealed the truth, or at least a lot of the truth, and you wrote an article about it on your blog, Slow Facts, which I recommend to everybody. Great blog. And we reprinted your article on our website at BuckeyeFirearms.org. Why don't you describe that survey to us? Because it was really unusual to have this amount of information come out about gun owners. Right. And and what came out was so different than what we see in the news. The survey was conducted, and you're, you're right, it was last year in July, by Professor William English. He's out of Georgetown University. This was an online survey, 10 times larger than anything we'd seen before. The old ones were phone surveys. And he had 54,000 people who responded, wait a minute, that means you know things about Asian women in Alaska or um, you, you filled out every demographic group in every state. Now, he just put out the preliminary reports in the fall. So there's more that's going to be coming out? Oh, it'll be a full book. It'll be fascinating. Yes. Okay. Because yeah, I'd, uh, I'd seen that where he had gone out to 54,000 people. And then uh, I guess based on the results he got from that, he then went back and asked really in-depth questions of sixteen or 17,000 people. I mean, that's a, that is a very good-sized survey. Well, what, um, let, let's jump in right. Let's jump in right there because it's a little more complex than that. 80 million of us, or about one out of three adults, are gun owners. We'd always suspected it was like a number like that. Now we know. We can put decimal places on the precision. We own about 400 million firearms. Okay, perspective. That's four guns for every three people in the United States, man, woman, and child. If we use a gun for self-defense, we do, and we do it a lot, about 1.7 million times a year. And this report admits that that undercounts the number. Let me explain why, because I, I found it fascinating. They said, do you own a gun? Because if you didn't own a gun, you wouldn't defend yourself, would you? And are you over 21 years of age? If you said no to either one, then of course, they stopped right there. They didn't, if you said yes, oh, had you ever used that gun? Dean, have you ever gone hunting with somebody else's gun? I have not, no. Well, it's, it wouldn't surprise you. You're out in the duck blind. If I asked you, you, did you ever shoot a duck with, with a friend's gun? The answer could very well be yes. If my wife defended herself with my gun, she would have fallen out of this survey. If uh, a 20-year-old um, defended themselves at home, whether it was their gun or someone else's, they would fall out of this survey. So they admit they undercounted. Well, that's all right. It gives us, it gives us a good number to start with. Well, and, and people I know in the past, and this has always plagued people in marketing, and that's my background. Right. You know, there was a time when everything was done by phone and people were fine with answering phones. These days, you can't get people to answer their phones. Right. And I know that especially on the conservative side, it's virtually impossible to get anybody on the phone to answer questions, to do any kind of a survey, to activate people pol uh, politically. One of the things they did in the survey was ask some benchmark questions. Do you own your own home? 
do you have a uh, do you engage in any other recreational activities? And then they looked. Oh, yeah, I play baseball. Uh, I go bike riding because they knew how many people own their own homes. They knew how many people owned a bicycle. So they were they were gauging the honesty of the answers by some of the non-firearms-related questions. Now, I know the there's a trade group out there that does not surveys, but they look at sports equipment that's sold. So, you know, they can they know how many sure. soccer balls have been sold. They know how many bicycles right. have been sold. They know how many baseball bats have been sold. And they look, can look at firearms and ammunition and all of that. Do, do these numbers, from what you're seeing, comport with what Absolutely. we've found out from all of that? Absolutely. Here's the numbers that surprised me, though, Dean, because we'd never asked it quite this way before. Turns out one out of 11 adults have used a gun in self-defense. Wow. Wow. One out of 12 adults, between 12 and 13, carry concealed in public every day. Now, that's a, that's a composite number, meaning if you look at a dozen people, one of them's carrying. Now, that might be 24 people, but some of them only carried every other day. On average, one out of a dozen people in public is carrying today. The other thing that was fascinating, and, and I thought it was kind of a thumbing its nose at the media, Dean, if I were to ask you, which state has the most gun owners? Your head goes, uh, Texas? Uh, Florida? No, not even close. Not even, I don't even think they're in the top five. California. Gun owners are everywhere. There are the most gun owners in California because California is the most populous state. Yeah, it's a big state, and, and a lot of it's rural. Everything that we hear out of uh, California is from the big cities. Coming from- off the, coming off the, well, and even when you get it, yes, coming out of L.A. and San Francisco. Exactly. But, but you know, you go, and I know one thing, uh, for example, in San Francisco, a very, very left-wing city, but you cross the bay, and you're in a whole different neighborhood. And they have shoots over there. I know people who own guns. And it's it's very different. California is not what people think it is. Yeah, a lot well, of it's rural. Um, a lot of it is conservative. But it's sort of like in Ohio, where we have a lot of rural areas and a lot of conservative people. But you have big cities like Columbus, like Cleveland, right. like Dayton. And that's where the news people tend to be. And we we get a skewed view of, of what the population really does thinks, votes, and all of that. Well, now, you're absolutely right. I was talking to Tom Gresham the other day about this study, and he talked about a TV producer he'd just gotten off the phone with in Manhattan. The producer said, you know, oh, interesting uh, program, Gun Talk, but we don't really own guns here. Tom said, oh, yes, you do. I've, I've shot with a bunch of guys who are out of Manhattan. I tell you what, talk to your coworkers behind closed doors. Two weeks later, the film, the TV producer comes back and says, oh my gosh, you're right. Half of the guys and gals I work with are gun owners in Manhattan. Guns are everywhere. We just yeah. don't always talk about it. You know, I do TV interviews occasionally with news people for TV. Mm-hmm. And you never really know where the reporters are. But invariably, the camera guy is a gun guy. I don't don't know what it is, but, you know, I can be answering a question about some gun bill, 
and I look over at the camber guy, and he's over there nodding his head, and then I'll talk to him later because that's where I come from. That was my first job in TV, and uh-huh. invariably, the camera guy is a gun guy, and you're right. Uh, you, you really don't know because a lot of people don't talk about these, these things at work. And the people reporting the news and processing the news aren't really in touch with a lot of other people. You know, they live in their own bubble. So you're right. Gun, gun owners are everywhere. Guns are everywhere. Well, let's, let's talk about that stereotype. Old white guy is a gun owner. That was out of 1950s TV. That's wrong. Women, you're right. They're underrepresented. They're 52% of the population. They're 45% of gun owners. So they're underrepresented by all of 9%. Holy cow. I thought it was more skewed than that. It's not. Hispanics are behind the national average by 4%. Blacks uh, by 7 Asians fit the stereotype, but not as much as we imagine. They're behind the national average by 13%. Yeah, the the breakdown of male-female really surprised me. I thought it was going to be more like 70-30, something like that. And I would have considered that, wow, you know, 30% female, that's a lot. But this survey showed that it was significantly more than that. Exactly, exactly. um, Now, here was something that was fun that came out of it. Where are we most at risk? And you and I think convenience store at night. That's not wrong, but this survey asked, where did you defend yourself? And the answer was, in and near my home. That's not where you were most at risk, but that's where you were most likely to be armed. Now, do you think that's just a matter of, well, you you spend a lot of time at your home. Sure. Even if you work outside the home, you know, that's eight hours a day, other than going to the grocery store, going to the shooting range or whatever, you're at home a lot of the time. I work at home. So I am at home virtually always. All the time. Right. Right. And so that's where things are likely to happen. I, and those statistics are really interesting. About one in 20 uh, self-defense incidents are at work. Right. About one in 10 are in a public place. So, you know, outside of, out of, outside of your yard, outside of your house. And about half were outside your home, but on your property. So I guess, what, mowing your grass, gardening? um, A criminal would like to wait for you to present yourself. Every guy who knocks on the door, hello, who is it? Boom. Now you're in a fight, right? Um, Let's put some of this in perspective. Oh, I didn't mention that. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, Yeah, one in 12 of us uh, have a permit. But let's compare that to the larger population. In Alabama, it's about a third of adults who have their carry permits. In some rural Pennsylvania counties, it's half of the adults. What you and I are going to be fascinated to see is what does it look like county by county? Are minorities in Cleveland being denied their carry permits? Are minorities in Los Angeles and San Francisco being denied their carry permits. Of course, the politicians will say, oh, they don't want them. And now we get to say, excuse me, they do everywhere else. You claiming that they're different where you are, you have to show me. I think you've denied it. Prove to me that you haven't. So, Rob, one of the things that was really fascinating in this report concerning defensive use of firearms 
were that there were about 1.67 million incidents per year. That's mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. Handguns are the most common type of firearm for self-defense. But here was the statistic that really caught my eye. About 82% of incidents, they said no shot was fired. So they used a firearm to defend themselves, I guess brandishing, putting their hand on the gun, whatever, but they never fired a shot. Now, that's really fascinating because reporters tend not to think that anything is a use of a firearm unless you actually shoot. Now, now why? Okay, so someone breaks into the, your home, you grab your gun, you say, get out. I'm armed. I've called the police. That firearm was very significant to you. It may have been significant to the guy deciding this was not the home invasion robbery I had planned. Let me try down the street. Um, now, and it gets more interesting than that. Did you put your finger on the trigger? Did the guy see it? Did you just have the gun? Did grandma have the gun on the table in front of her? And she says, I'll shoot you if you come any closer. Was that a gun use? Was it the fact that she puts her hand in her purse and says, I've got a gun here. So, you know, in that sense, this study says, what did the defender think was significant? They thought the gun was a significant part of their defense that stopped a violent crime. And that's never going to get reported. And because the story that you get from the media is, you know, number one, that virtually nobody really has guns. It's this really small group of people. And when it comes to self-defense, you know, that almost never happens because they're going by what gets reported. So if someone gets right. shot and is lying on the ground, that gets reported. But if you're in a parking lot and you pull your gun, you aim it at somebody, they run away. Number one, you're probably not going to report that. And number two, because you don't report it, it doesn't get into a police report. It's not going to get into the paper. So the media is never going to be aware of that. In, in many police departments, there literally is no place to put it, Dean. I've put my, I pointed my gun at the guy and he ran. It, to, to many police departments that, you know, no shots fired. That, okay. They, it doesn't even, it would never even get reported to the FBI as defensive gun use. But here, let's, let's keep going because you touched on something really important. Not only what the uh, survey says, but what it means. Four, 400 million guns in the United States. We are not going to disarm criminals by regulating honest gun owners. Background checks cannot work to stop criminal behavior with a gun. Now, here's why that's even more important. And, and we thought that for a long time. Now we've got the data. We can't register a quarter of the U.S. population who are gun owners. And also criminals only use their guns in 8% of violent crimes. So all these burdens that we're putting on honest gun owners aren't even addressing 92% of violent crime. Wow. Right. And I want to I want to stay on this idea of what constitutes a gun use because when I okay. saw this statistic of about 82% of self-defense incidents where there was no shot fired, I immediately thought, well, you know, the media and a lot of the anti-gun activists are going to say, well, you, you know, you weren't really using your gun. That, that just rarely happens. First thing I thought was, no, wait a minute. I have fire extinguishers in my home. I have one on every floor, one in the basement, one on the first floor, one on the second floor. 
They're centrally located. They're ready to go. My wife and I have even taken training with the local fire department on how to use those fire extinguishers. The question is, am I using them if they're sitting there in the closet? My answer is yes. I'm using it. Just like I'm using the smoke detectors in my house. There's no fire, but I'm using them right now because the job is for it to be there ready to go when I need it. That's use if I'm carrying my firearm. And, and I may never have to draw that firearm ever. A lot of police officers never have to draw their firearm in their entire career. But are you using that firearm? My answer is yes, because it's doing what it's meant to do. It's there for the thing that you can't anticipate. Because if you could, Rob, I mean, if I knew that I'm going to be attacked at the local Kroger when I come out, you know, putting my groceries in my car, I'm not going to go. You'll shop somewhere else tonight. Right. Right. Exactly. So I carry the firearm for the thing that I don't know is going to happen, for the unknown. And so I'm, I'm using it just by carrying it. I'm using it just by having it. Let's amplify that. You, uh... Policeman, guy's got a DUI, gets out of the car, he's belligerent, takes something out of his car, raises it up over his head. The officer puts his hand back on his weapon because now he's got a situation. And the and the drunk goes, you know, this was a bad idea. Takes his hands up, puts them on the car. What do we do now, officer? Okay, was that a defensive gun use? To the drunk it was. Yeah, and, and, and again, this is why... The picture that we see in the media is very skewed, even if they're not an activist. Just the way that that information is processed, you know, they say if it bleeds, it leaves. Something has to happen. Someone has to get shot before there's anything about firearms in the news. And and I think that we've discussed this before. I've discussed this with other people. Mm -hmm. You know, I get these little newspapers, neighborhood newspapers, and it tells me everything that I want to know about everybody else in the area. I know (laughs) all about the soccer team and the Girl Scout troops selling their cookies, and I know about the water aerobics, you know, for the, uh, for people at the, you know, local swimming pool and, and everything else, but there's nothing about firearms ever unless someone gets hurt. Well, okay, so the media is doing a poor job. i took this report out of Georgetown and I added some numbers that we already knew to try and create that sense of perspective. You and I know that suicide is a problem. Well, we're 70 times more likely to defend ourselves with a gun than to take our own life with a gun. Okay. That puts suicide in perspective when it comes to firearms. So what does that mean in the public debate? Well, if someone says, we need to stop suicides, there's, you know, dozens a day, we should demand an annual psychiatric screening before we're allowed to own a gun, because that way, what? Because that way, actually, we'll get more people robbed, assaulted, raped, and murdered, because we just disarmed the victims. Well, and not only that, uh, you know, BFA has co-founded a suicide awareness and prevention program. Right. And it's a very, you know, non-political sort of thing. The government doesn't get involved. It's not about law. It's, you know, it's all gun owners for gun owners kind of a thing. Right. And when I took the training, I, I admit I completely misunderstood 
how suicide works. And I can tell you that after the training that I've taken, what you just suggested, this idea of doing evaluations of people, even assuming logistically that that, were, that would be possible, that would not screen out people who are going to commit suicide. Yeah. That's not how it works. Right. It's not like you're, the, the people who commit suicide are crazy. You know, it, it's, it's a completely different mechanism. Right. So all that would do would be reduce the number of people who are willing to consider legally owning firearms. Well, be- because you and I long suspected that some gun control laws weren't really about controlling crime or accidents or suicides. Well, here's another one, Dean. Um, firearms accidents but we're 3,500 times more likely to legally use a gun in armed defense than to have a fatal gun accident. So what does that say about mandatory storage regulations? Unless they're precisely tailored, unless we're really, really careful, then we're gonna make it so that grandma can't get to her gun at night and she's gonna be a disarmed victim rather than an armed defender. Well, we've known for a long time that when activists try to pass laws, that they're completely disconnected from what they're yep. trying to yep. accomplish. Yep. The, the, the most egregious example, and the, probably maybe the funniest example, was there was a shooting at a church that happened some years ago, and a guy used a shotgun. So he went in, shot people with a shotgun. That's, that's very nasty. That does a lot of damage. Oof. That does a lot of damage close up. Yes. The very next day, there are proposals to ban ARs. <laughs> and it was just like I'm looking at it and thinking, you know, is what? this like on The Onion? Is this from Saturday Night Live? I mean, what? The, it, it seemed like a joke. But it wasn't because it doesn't matter. The whole idea was let's just pass it. Let's use this as an right. excuse to pass a law. We don't really care about murders or suicide or accidents or anything like that. Just use the incident to pass a law. Right. Don't, don't let a tragedy go to waste. Um, well, and again, what we have to remember is that we can't solve a small problem by creating a larger one. And in that case, I'm so proud of the people in Ohio. Thank you for the calls you made, because it sounds like you're going to have constitutional carry in a while. And we know that gun registration fees cost lives, mandatory waiting periods cost lives, and as much as I love to send my students to conceal carry classes, those mandatory classes and then the carry application fees, those cost lives and you guys are headed in the right direction. So one of the things that's often misunderstood, Rob, about passing constitutional carry, and we can talk about that just for a moment, is that once you have that, once there's no permit or license for carrying a concealed gun, that suddenly nobody's going to do training anymore. And what we have found is that that is exactly the opposite. The training actually goes up because more people have access to firearms. They don't have to pay all those fees anymore. At least all of that becomes optional, which is what we're trying to do in Ohio. We're not trying to eliminate the license. We're just trying to make it optional. But actually, plenty of people continue to get training. And I will say, unfortunately, some of the opposition comes from firearm trainers. Yes. And they give a lot of reasons for why they are not really happy about constitutional carry or permitless carry, but it's a pocketbook issue. They're just worried that their classes are going to dry up and they're not going to make any money anymore. 
The statistics that we have from other states shows that in many cases the, the training continues, it even goes up. And so I would think that once we pass it, we're going to see more people taking classes, not fewer people taking classes. That's what we saw in Arizona and Texas. They, they skipped the carry class, but they said, all right, I need the presentation class. I need the legal use of lethal force. Yeah, people signed up for those instead. And what the great news is they had more money because they weren't sending it to the state. And a lot of the, what's in those classes, I mean, let's just be honest, is what, what I call status crimes. If you have laws that, you know, here's where you can't do this, here's where you can't do that because of concealed carry rules, if those rules disappear, you don't need to know that anymore. So a lot of the classes were about showing you how, how not to trip up over the laws that you've eliminated. People know the basics. People know, don't go rob the local grocery store. You know, don't go over at 3 a.m. to your neighbor and shoot them dead in, the, in their living room. I mean, we all know that, that, the basics. And we have 21 other states that have constitutional carry right now, and they're all doing just fine. You know what I, I like to do with uh, people in the news? I go, shall we play a game? I'll name the state, and you tell me whether they have constitutional carry based on the degree of violence there. And they go, oh, no, we don't want to play that game. I go, right, you don't. And and I've never been one on this subject to, to argue that, okay, we're going to reduce crime by passing a law like this. That That's not what it's about. You know, the, there, are, there are varied statistics on that. And it's really hard to attribute, you know, what makes crime go up or what makes crime go down. But what we do know, and these are other studies, is in fact, I think this William English has another study that came out last year as well about how liberalizing carry laws do not increase crime. Right. Because gun control laws miss their target. Right. If you're a criminal, if you're a felon— you can't have a gun anyway. Right. You're not following a law to begin with. I'm not a felon. I think I have one traffic ticket on my record for the past 20 years, which is pretty good. And I'm qualified to have a gun. I'm not going to go rob people. I'm not going to commit murder. But I have to follow those laws. So the laws burden those who are not going to commit the violent crimes, and they completely miss the people who tend to commit almost all of the violent crimes. And you and I now have to ask ourselves, was that a mistake in the law that it impacted the wrong people? Or was that their intended feature right from the start? I would say, yes, it, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that there, there's not a lot of, uh, shall we say, uh, you know, moral high ground when it comes to passing those kind of laws. But right. I think there's also something else going on. I think that and, and I hear this all the time when people are wanting to pass more gun control laws. They conflate the criminals with gun owners. Right. And what I hear in testimony a lot at the state house is that everyone who has a gun is a potential murderer. They, they are a criminal in waiting. And so at any time, that means that you, that I, that anyone who happens to have a firearm could commit murder at any time. Now, I realize that some people who are activists in that area and gun control groups, they've had some traumatic events in their past. And I feel sorry for them, and I, and I get that. And I, I can sort of emotionally figure out, you know, where they're coming from. 
because they went through this horrible event that from their point of view was completely random. But it's not. There are two different groups. There's the bulk of people who are law-abiding and tend to never commit serious crimes. And then there's this really tiny group of very violent felons, gang members, people who, if you look at the people on the news who are uh, convicted of, of committing some of these violent crimes, they have a long history. That's right. You know, assaults, domestic violence, uh, theft, and it, and it builds and builds until eventually they kill someone. Right. Well, do you remember a, a number that John Lott, I thought it was a brilliant way to uh, talk about this. Half of all of our counties will not have a murder. 2% of our counties will give us over half of our murders. Gun ownership is widespread. Violence, in contrast, is localized. The TV has made us think that everywhere is Chicago, and it's not. Well, what I thought was interesting, and this is very Ohio, <laughs> uh, the, the Columbus Dispatch, which is the main newspaper in mm -hmm. Columbus, Central Ohio, they actually published a study not long ago showing that at least half of all of the murders in Columbus are by gang members. It was, I don't have it in front sure. of me, by, you know, four or 500 individuals. They know who they were. That mm -hmm. all the murders, half of the murders at least, are coming just from those gang members. And an interesting thing that John Lott did, since you mentioned him, was a few years ago he published a map and basically took every murder committed everywhere in the United States and digitally put a pin in a map on where it happened. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because you look at a place like Chicago and people think, well, Chicago, man, I don't want to go there because it's super violent. You look at that map and you see, actually, in most places in Chicago, there's never a murder. Right. So they tend to be very, very localized, certain streets, certain neighborhoods. And it was a real eye-opener even for me, and I've been following this kind of stuff for a long time. You're right. It's localized. A very few people in a very few areas, that's where most of the violence tends to happen. But you pass a law at the state level, and who does it affect? Everybody. Everybody. There you go. And the politician gets to say, I did something. I made us safer until you and I tell the rest of the story where we go, no, no, you disarmed my kids because you made it harder, more expensive. It takes more time, um, takes more money to get a gun and defend themselves. No, you cost lives. You didn't save them. And now we can say that. Now we've got the numbers. And Rob, you hit on it. Just one final point here. It's all about fundraising. It's all about politics. Because when uh, the politicians, uh, you know, bring up these bills and present them in the House or even in the Senate, and what do they do? The bills don't move, but they immediately go out with emails, have press conferences. Look what I've done. And right. it's it's about getting in office and staying in office and proving to their liberal constituents that they're doing something, and they don't care what the laws are. It has Dean, nothing. It has nothing to do with crime. Dean, thank you, because come the next election, you get to point out what they really did, and if I get to help you in some small way by writing up some reports where I've studied the data, 
I like to think that in some really small remote way, I've helped to save some lives. Well, uh, that brings us uh, to the end of the podcast. Rob, thanks for sharing your thoughts on all this. But before we wrap it up, do you want to plug your blogs? Oh, sure. I host the Self-Defense Gun Stories podcast, and I co-host the Polite Society podcast each week. My blog is at slowfacts.wordpress.com. My writing's picked up at Ammoland, where I write the re- weekly Armed Citizens column. And especially with Slow Facts, I'm, you know I'm a big fan of that. It's, you do a lot with guns. Now, you cover other subjects as well. But what's nice about it is that you're really in-depth. You know, it's not drive-by writing. <laughs> which, which is, you know, the, the, this Twitter-style reporting that we see in a lot of places. You really go in-depth. You give your sources. You think it through. And, you you know, I can always tell that you put a lot of thought into it. And so for our listeners, if you've never been to Rob's Slow Facts blog, please look it up. Just uh, can you just Google Slow Facts? Will, will it come up? Yeah, yeah. Slowfacts.wordpress.com. Thanks, Rob. appreciate you being on the podcast. I'm sure we'll have you back again soon. Thank you for all you do, Dean. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.